0: Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Join in on a great conversation today with one of the world's great influencers as they showcase the latest tricks and techniques that made them the game changers they are today.
1: Now, here's Tony D'Urso. Welcome to The Spotlight. I'm your host, Tony D'Urso. The Spotlight focuses on highlighting stars, greats, and game changers. And we broadcast every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, so please set your calendar to hear from the world's elite. Today's Spotlight interview is with Dr. Erwin Redlener talking about the future of us. But first, you know this, some news for you. With over 2 million downloads on my weekly talk shows, our audience is loving our guest interviews, and I really want to say from the bottom of my heart, thanks a million. Actually, thanks 2 million and i am now on television with the tony durso tv show check it out at tonydurso.com/tony tv and if you want to get some major shout outs for your business or get interviewed just go to tonydurso.com/tony tv and check out the links all right today we set the stage for the spotlight to chat with dr erwin redlener talking about The Future of Us. Dr. Redlener is the author of The Future of Us. He's president emeritus and co-founder of the Children's Health Fund and director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness. He's also a professor of public health and pediatrics at Columbia University. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Spotlight, Erwin. It is such an honor to have you. Thanks for taking the time to join us today on the Spotlight.
2: Happy to be here, Tony. Thank you for having me
1: excellent and the first things first for our audience you have such a great history we'd love to know how did it all start for you
2: well you know it's it's really uh, in a sense been a lifelong adventure for me getting to uh be able to do some of the things i've been able to do over the last few decades but um you know, like everything else and like everyone else, the uh, a lot of what we end up doing and becoming has roots in childhood and your upbringing and the experiences that you have. But I would say that uh, for myself, uh, there were some very uh, important experiences, uh, you know, that I had after college that uh, set me on a road that uh, ended up... Uh, bringing me to where I am. And so those experiences had to do mostly with a summer spent in Ohio, uh, training to uh, work with a new government program that was uh, helping inner city youths find careers and education and a future and uh, met a lot of young people that uh, were struggling, but uh, really trying to make it. And uh, one particular experience, which I recount in the book was, uh, uh, as part of the training again, what we uh, were taken, I was taken really to a, to visit a reform school i don 't even know that we the word use, we use that expression anymore, but it was a basically a detention center uh, for troubled youth and I there met a six year old kid who was in essence incarcerated and I was very moved by that and I even as an 18 year old thought, well I, how could this be? Why do we have a, a six year old in jail here what What happened?" To turn this life in this direction uh, at such a young age, and um, what did that all mean? And I, I knew then that it was impossible that a a six-year-old uh, would need jail as opposed to uh, you know services or interventions or whatever. But but I think that was one of the early experiences that I was concerned about. But I also was raised in a household with a, a dad who was a psychologist. And a a social activist, political activist kind of guy. And my mom was a teacher, a very good teacher, a very uh, beloved teacher. And so I I, I knew that uh, there was some infusion of their values and all that in in myself as I was growing up.
1: Thanks for sharing that. That's a very moving story about the six-year-old. And I can see how that's the impetus, how that's the start, the root of what you're doing now and what, what you have with your really good book called The Future of Us, and I'm going to ask you a couple questions about your book, but I'd love to know a little bit more about some of your background. I just find it very interesting. For example, I know you've worked at several medical facilities in your career, and I'd love to know, as well as our audience, what are some of the key experiences that really impacted your career, such as you've already told us about that six-year-old, and as well as not just impacted your career, but also started you on that road of to social justice children 's advocate, and so forth,
2: yeah, so I had um, many experiences as a uh, as a young person in medical school and then as a a doctor in training in what 's called the residency program that i uh, programs that I was involved in but and there were many experiences along the way that uh, helped shape what I thought about. Uh, healthcare, care, what I thought about helping, and what I thought about children who were in need, and so on. And there were many, but let me just say, I, mentioned, I want to mention a couple because they were really important. One was um, as an intern just out of medical school. I was training at uh, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York. And there was an entire floor of the hospital. It was called Babies Hospital. That floor was dedicated to children with cancer. This is again, it was 1969 and 1970, so, so quite a long time ago. But there was a very famous children's cancer doctor, a pediatric oncologist named uh, Jim Wolfe And Wolf would make rounds uh, with us, you know, visit all the patients every day. But he had a certain philosophy about, you know, doing everything possible for every child, and. That seems like a good idea, except when it isn't. And when it isn't is when uh, the children really reached the end of the rope. And it was clear that the children were not going to survive and we need to stop treating because the treatments were very painful and very difficult for kids and for their families. But uh, Wolf's attitude was, you know what, I'm not, I'm going to the next level. I'm going to give more of this medicine no matter what. And the kids would be strapped to their cribs and beds, these little babies and toddlers, uh, crying in pain and discomfort, and it was they were not going to survive. And I once actually uh, spoke to Dr. Wolf after we had visited the floor, making rounds, it's called. And I said to him directly, you know, Dr. Wolf, why... Why do you keep treating these children that we know are not going to survive since it's so painful for them and for their families? And he said, well, the only way I could emotionally bear the sorrow of dealing with these kids with cancer and having to make a decision every day on every child, am I going to go to the next stage of treatment or not, uh, that process is painful to me and I can't keep doing this work unless I sort of compartmentalize it. And in essence, he had made the decision long ago to say, and to himself, to say, listen, I'm not going to make a decision every day on every child. I'm just going to say in advance that every child is going to get every single possible treatment till they, till they pass away. And I, I had such a reaction to that. I, I didn't know what to say. I, so I sort of got his point about... Uh, you know, that it was difficult for him to make a decision every day, and it was very nuanced because, you know, you never really knew 100% they weren't going to make it. But, you know, there's times when experienced doctors just know this is not working. Um, but uh, so I got where he was coming from, but it was still very disturbing to me because we were inflicting so much suffering on children in the guise of giving, you know, advanced medical care. You know, it was just many, many experiences like that, another... Uh, another experience that I had as, a, as an intern at the same hospital was a child had passed away, a young uh, toddler, and I went up to the room and uh, mom was, uh, I mean the nurse, the nurse, the mom was not in the room. That she had left. The nurse was crying. She had accidentally, you know, removed part of it. She had taken off the bandages and part of the child's finger was removed accidentally. And very traumatic uh, for me and for the nurse and for the mother. It was just uh, horrifying. But, you know, all this was mixed with a lot of joy on the other hand, kids that uh, were at the edge, and uh, we brought them back, and um, I learned a number of things about myself and about life, and one was that I was felt pretty blessed about having the ability to really help children and that were very sick and very much in trouble. I also learned about myself that I was, you know, uh, capable to function effectively in an emergency crisis situation that required um, life and death's death's, um, decision-making. And that sort of attitude led me to get involved with uh, uh, disaster response. And actually that's my uh, focus now so much on disaster response had its roots back then when it was like, you know, I I was – uh, very uh, comfortable in the situa- in situations that were crises where I could go in and say, "Okay, I can I can help here." So uh, I spent years even before I was involved in pediatric or in disaster response, but in bringing medical teams to say disasters in Guatemala in the seventies and so on. So this has been part of a thread that's been part of me. So it's like I have these two parallel uh, career affecting. Um, streams of thought and interest one being uh my concern about social justice and access to uh care for children which i write a lot about in the book and the other was my desire to be able to help out in in truly emergent situations so and the fusion point there is if there are vulnerable children in harm's way like in disasters or the recovery from a large-scale disaster it's something right so that's very important to me for both reasons so um and that's sort of one part of my life. And the other part has to do with this social justice function.
1: Erwin, thank you so much. You know, those stories about the children in the hospital and your doctor friend and what he's faced with on making those decisions every day or what is he, how is he going to deal with it? It's very moving and it really is very hard to comment on something like that. I've lost a couple of family members and friends due to cancer. I understand the stories and the hardship that they go through to a degree And I just really feel for that. This is that kind of a subject. that just evokes emotions. And I'm going to come back to the children advocacy and so forth in just a moment. But you mentioned the being the um, I know you were a director for the National Center for Disaster Preparedness. I think you just talked about Guatemala. I'd like to learn a little bit more about what you do on that and how that kind of works and fits on this, please.
2: So. The National Dis- the National Center for Disaster Preparedness is a uh, center at Columbia University. It's part of Columbia University, and uh, I guess it's best to think of it as a um, uh, an academic think tank. So we do research, take other people's research, and we out of that research help figure out what policies should be in place to uh, guide how we do respond. To disasters, but also how to prepare for disasters effectively, how to promote resiliency among uh, people so that uh, we're able to live through a disaster and then bounce back and return to some form of normal life. But we're working right now, for example, in uh, Texas on a number of programs that uh, it's now a year after the uh, Hurricane Harvey, which hit Texas so hard last year, and we're very actively involved in Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, which happened on September 20th of last year. So we're active in response and in recovery programs and actually literally helping uh, communities and individuals recover. Uh, but we're also at the same time, because we are in this sort of academic setting, are able to develop uh, policy recommendations and papers that will help guide uh, people that run things like FEMA and the Red Cross and uh, local disaster agencies and say, you know, um, here you're having this, uh, these are some challenges that you uh, that we know you're facing, here's what uh, can be done about it, here's what our research shows.
1: This is the Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Just ahead, the chat continues with Dr. Erwin Redlener talking about the future of us. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment.
3: This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired.
1: Check out my other great interviews at TonyDurso.com slash radio or using your Android or iPhone. Get the app at TonyDurso.com slash mobile. That's TonyDurso.com slash radio or slash mobile.
4: and get Amplified.
0: Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We don't follow,
3: we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel.
0: Listening to the Spotlight with Tony D'Irso. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyDURSO.com. Now, back to the Spotlight.
1: All right, we're back with Tony D'Irso on the Spotlight. Today's show is with Dr. Irwin Redlener, talking about the future of us. Under Irwin's leadership, Children's Health Fund grew to become a national network of more than 50 mobile and fixed-site pediatric clinics, providing more than 250,000 healthcare encounters each year in 25 of the nation's most medically underserved urban and rural communities. All right, and now back to the chat with Irwin.
2: I'll give you a good example of that. that, um, If you're the hospital administrator, the CEO of a major hospital... And you're thinking about, are you ready for a major disaster that might happen in your community? So, um, you might think, well, I, I'm going to plan to do these, to implement these three protocols. And in my planning, I'm assuming that 95% of my staff will remain there through the duration of the disaster and, and the aftermath. But, um You know, what you don't know is that something that we can tell you, which is that we've done some surveys and studies, and I'm going to tell you that if it's a radiation-related disaster or a highly infectious lethal disease type of disaster, uh, you may not have more than 25 or 30 percent of your staff that will be there. So you're going to have to plan accordingly, uh, but uh, that makes a that changes everything of course for the for the hospital administrators who say oh my god how are we going to do this without these having my staff there and then we said well look here's what we think could be done we surveyed many nurses and other hospital personnel and we can tell you this if you have a daycare set up in your hospital so that the your staff your essential staff can bring their children with them or your children and yourself can be could be uh, could have the uh first uh, doses available of the preventive vaccine that can incentivize more of your people to stay and uh, stay at work. And those things would, in essence, uh, help mitigate or help uh, resolve some of the staffing challenges you would otherwise face. So it's a very, it's an academic think tank, but we focus in very practical ways to help make uh, disaster response better.
1: I like that. That's very smart on how you work things so that more people can feel more comfortable to stay there. Throughout it, not that people want to necessarily not be part of working in a disaster, but they have their other needs. And I see how being prepared is part of that is addressing those needs as well. So that's actually very, very smart. That's a good strategic move. And I understand this center is at Columbia and you're also a professor there. I'd like to yeah. know just a little bit of what's it like to teach there?
2: Well, Columbia is, a, you know, it's a great place, and uh, but I'm a big fan of uh, higher education institutions. Anyway, I think they're so critical to helping people find themselves and find where they want to go in life, and it's all great. And Columbia's got it's very rich in in the sense of the breadth and depth of uh, faculty expertise and teaching and all that. And uh, some faculty members actually teach regular courses. So, like, I'm, uh, if I'm a faculty member in uh, you know English literature or history or social sciences or whatever I am going to uh, you know I have a course and have a course load and I'm teaching three courses a semester and the students are coming to my class and you know the usual thing that you might expect other faculty members myself included are on the faculty we run programs and centers like my center National Center for Disaster Preparedness but we you know I, I don't really have a regular course to teach but I do give a lot of lectures at the school, so a program in the uh, Graduate School of Public Health, for example, and they, uh, I'll get a call from the chairman of the department say, can you give this lecture to the students, and I always do. But So I, I don't actually teach formal courses, but I do do a lot of lecturing, and it's really great. And I think uh, I really very much enjoy uh, speaking to young people anyway and having the interaction with uh students is is something that's very uh positive experience for me, of course.
1: Thank you, totally got that. Okay, that makes great sense. And I consider instructing speaking as part of teaching, but I understand it's not necessarily a syllabus class if I'm even yes, saying that right, right. That you teach, okay, got it. and now I'd love to know about this book. And I, by the way, I love the title, The Future of Us, and as I understand. It's like a memoir, actually, and a call to action for everyone, private citizens, business, anybody, to invest in our children and help them. Yeah. And it's such a great title. Tell us a little bit more about this book and what you hope to achieve with it.
2: So, uh, yeah, it's The Future of Us and the subtitles, What the Dreams of Children Mean for America in the 21st Century. and the reason that subtitle is also important is that, uh, so the book is, as you pointed out, Tony, it's a combination of a memoir and a kind of a, a prescription for what we need to be doing for our children. And there's, there's a particular story in that book that, um, sort of captures really the, the main theme here. If you don't mind, I just would like to talk about this because this is really important. It's really influential in my own thinking. And, uh, and helped really define what I wanted to do. And so this is like in 1991, I uh, was working as a pediatrician on a pediatric mobile clinic. In other words, a 35 foot, totally self contained pediatric clinic on wheels. And we would go to, you know, very uh, underserved neighborhoods in New York City and take care of uh, mostly homeless children and um, so one day in 1991 I'm there uh, I am uh, in the back examining room, two examining rooms on, on these mobile. I'm in the back examining room and I uh, and they bring in a little 10 year old boy named uh, William. And William uh, was at that point homeless but he's also in a foster care facility and he comes in there, and he's, his head is down, and he's looking at the ground, at the floor. He's, uh, he's closer to the shovel. He's a little on the thin side. And I'm trying to engage him, and he's not that interested in looking at me or talking to me until I say, what do you want to be when you grow up, William? And he says, he looks at me at that, that point and says, I want to be a paleontologist. I said, a paleontologist? Well, that's incredible. What? Tell me what that is. He said it's a person that looks for dinosaur bones, and I said that's right. How do you know about that? He reaches into his pocket and plucks out an old New York Times article. This point, yellow newsprint, and uh, it's a story about a famous uh, American paleontologist working out west. And uh, and by the way, I found this article later, but um, he. Uh, this is what this is in his you know, pocket of his shirt, and this is basically his anchor, his lifeline to a potential future. And I, you know, I'm looking at him and I'm thinking that, uh, man, oh man, the chance of this homeless child in foster care who had not been going to school regularly, actually ending up a paleontologist, that those chances were minimal to none that that would happen. And I was very moved by that considering this child standing in front of me and what the likely outcome was going to be, and it wasn't going to be what uh, was reflected in this newspaper article. So literally like 25 years later, I am in a radio studio about to record a podcast with a friend of mine named Billy Shore, who runs an anti-hunger child program, anti-child hunger program out of Washington called Share Our Strength, SOS and uh billy said what are you up to i said well i'm writing this book and tell him about the book and i tell him about this kid who wanted to be a paleontologist and i see so billy my friend is looking at me i said well what's up billy says well would you believe that my own 10 year old son nathan also wants to be a paleontologist but in our case you know we've taken him to every museum in the in the region that has dinosaurs in it uh my wife and I have got him, gotten him every book appropriate for his age on dinosaurs. And, in fact, we just called a month ago. This scientist out west, who's a paleontologist, spoke to him, told him about our son. He said, well, why don't you come visit? So we we flew out there, the three of us. My wife and I and Nathan spent the day with this guy, who was wonderful to him, and completely... You know, uh, uh, underscored his uh, my son's enthusiasm and excitement about going into paleontology. So now we're you know Billy and I are both looking at each other. We didn't really even need to say anything. It was just clear that the contrast between the kid I was talking about, William, and uh, and Billy's son Nathan, in terms of what they could expect in their you know respective futures, was so. Grossly, oh, I would say grotesquely different that uh, it was, you know, I, I was basically speechless.
0: What is that? Story. We lived in
2: a country where the disparities were so great that they were manifest in this story of these two children, both the same age and with wildly different opportunities for the future. So, this is the thing that really bothers me the most about. Uh, really in some ways uh, obviously the country but my own life and career and uh but it is really it was really it's a perfect illustration of why i wrote this book it's really about trying to end the disparities that uh, uh that exist in terms of children's opportunities to uh to develop to have a future that's meaningful and productive and satisfying and meeting their potential and all that so um yeah, this was a this was a big thing, and I think this is a story. And I like I said, it started uh, nineteen ninety one, so a long time ago. I was carrying this around before I actually got to write the book. But the book is that's what it is. It's filled with uh, stories about children like this, and what it is that we uh, can and should both think about and do about all of this.
1: What a story, Irwin. That's very deep, and I truly hope that with this show that we're doing this interview, that we get it out to a lot of people to really increase the awareness on this. I totally am with something like this, and I can get my shoulder behind something. This is a wake-up call, and it's our future. And I see that, and that's just really such a good story.
2: You know, Tony, the other thing that's so interesting and true about this is that it's about the future. It's It's about the kids' future, the family's future, and the country's future. It's like all, you know, it's like how unfortunate for America if we don't understand how important it is to make sure that every child has a pathway to success. You know, I used to focus on health and child health. I'm a pediatrician, obviously, by background. But this last few years, and especially now, I'm really focused on the possibility. And what we could do about increasing the possibility of every single child becoming a success story that's that 's it that 's how I want to spend the rest of my functioning days here is uh, promoting this notion that uh, every child deserves this opportunity and and the country needs them to have that opportunity and that 's really the the essence what 's frustrating to me though, uh, and I hope you and your listeners can understand this. I started working on this these issues in 1971 uh when i went to lee county arkansas which was the sixth poorest county in america at that time i was a child of uh, the kennedy johnson era of activism and i thought you know at that point as you know a 28 year old or whatever i was that well it was not possible to even think that we were not going to solve these big problems um you know, JFK said we're going to get to the moon in nine years. And, uh, you know, it, it happened. Um, so what did I know? So I'm in Arkansas, rural Arkansas, a very desolate, impoverished place with plenty of racism everywhere. And I was telling people, hey, 10, 15 years, we'd end child poverty in America, and every every child would have access to health care. I mean, that was, I firmly believe that. And here we are, you know, Almost 50 years later, and we still have such problems with disparities and diversities and and children not getting access to the things that they need. You know, and obviously, you know, you can imagine I'm a pretty politically oriented person as well. But I will say, and I'm not really happy these days, but let me say this, that... um, that children uh, in America have been at the bottom of the barrel in terms of priorities, as far as I can see, for all these years, through every combination of Democratic and Republican president, Democratic and Republican uh, control of House and Senate, and so on, in every conceivable permutation and combination of those of uh, those possibilities, and we still haven't solved child poverty, and we still haven't guaranteed health care for every child. So. You know, I might be partisan, but I'm not ideologically fixed in the sense of, oh, if we only elected Democrats, this would be solved. We've had times in our last, you know, decades where we've had uh, Democratic uh, government uh, in terms of uh, control of Congress and the White House, uh, and we've done better, but it's never been definitive.
1: This is the Spotlight with Tony D'Earsol. Just ahead, the chat continues with Dr. Erwin Redlener talking about the future of us. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment.
3: Change starts here. Change starts now. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel.
1: You heard that a majority of businesses fail. Don't be a statistic. Get my book free, The Vision Map. Beat the odds for your business success. Get it free at TonyDurso.com slash vision. And set up your own successful vision map. TonyDurso.com slash vision. Are you ready for
3: provocative discussions with some of today's most powerful movers and shakers? Tune in to The Art of Significance featuring Dan Clark, the modern day Napoleon Hill, who interviews the wealthiest, most successful celebrities and business leaders on the planet who are using their influence to change the world. From authors to entertainers, sports figures, educators, to military leaders, Dan covers multiple topics. Tune in every Monday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Listen for
4: In the Limelight with Clarissa Burt, international media celebrity, supermodel, and renowned beauty and lifestyle expert, as well as founder and CEO of Enveloper, multimedia platform for women, and sought-after inspirational speaker on women's issues. You'll connect with Clarissa's super influential, Influencers, celebrity friends, and experts as they speak about health, wealth, beauty, lifestyle, business, the love of giving, and the love of living a model life. Tune in every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time, 2 p.m. Eastern time, on the Voice America Influencers Channel.
0: The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv today.
3: Hear the stories, be motivated, be inspired. Join us today, Voice America Influencers.
0: You're listening to The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyDurso.com. Now, back to The Spotlight.
1: All right, we're back with Tony D'Arso on The Spotlight. Today's show is with Dr. Erwin Redlener talking about the future of us. Erwin initiated a new special initiative on Healthy and Ready to Learn, which endeavors to ensure that no child suffers from health-related concerns that can interfere with early development or success in school. He also directs the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at the Columbia University's Earth Institute. And... At the Earth Institute, he founded and directs the program on child well-being and resilience. All right, back to the chat with Irwin. And
2: now, of course, we're in a situation which is more difficult and worse than I could have ever imagined. But whatever, it's not been an easy thing to pin on one party versus the other. Although, you know, obviously this, it's better for children when people who care about children and their futures are in, in power.
1: Totally agree with you on that. And there's always something that we can do. I like the fact that this book is a wake-up call. So let's just kind of take things here. First of all, everyone in the audience, you got to get a copy of The Future of Us. Irwin, can we get this at Amazon, Barnes & Noble? Where's this book available, first of all?
2: Uh, both. Amazon, I think, is the most common place where people get it. But uh, and if your local bookstore doesn't have it, I would tell the manager demand demand demand
1: demand demand that they order
2: it <laughs> yeah no it's I, I think you know I, I a lot of people have mentioned this and I had this in mind when I was writing it I think it's This is not a ponderous read. This is an easy read. There's a lot of sort of uh, very, I think, uh, entertaining uh, stories in there. I mean, it includes, uh, you know, uh, my wife and I had dinner with Fidel Castro in 1999. Um, I was on the board of directors of USA for Africa, which was the We Are the World people, dealing with the uh, drought and famine in sub-Saharan Africa in the mid-'80s. And, you know, I was at board meetings with Michael Jackson and some pretty amusing Tales in there. And um, I think it's, it's a, like I said, it's, a, it's an easy book to read, but I, but I think hopefully the messages about social justice and access to what children need and what the country needs uh, combined with the memoir, you know, uh, I think people, I think it's a good read.
1: Absolutely. And I love a sentence that you said earlier in this interview. It struck me, and it was like, yes we want every child a success story. So we're going to go get the book, The Future of Us. And can you give us a couple, we're, we're, for those that have not yet, as of this second, read the book, can you give us some, uh, maybe a little list of some of the things that we can do to help?
2: Yeah. So I think, um, first of all, it's very important that people understand that uh, this is not just a political question. So People, uh, here's what here's what we hear over the years. So that Democrats like programs; they want to invest money in programs for children. Republicans think that uh, raising children is the responsibility of a parent, so they focus on the parent's responsibility to do what's needed for their children. Your listeners may have one point of view or the other. My point of view is that we need both. We, uh, you know, governments cannot raise children, and. Uh, Parents raise children, but parents cannot build a new school in a community. Parents cannot have uh, you know have the resources to hire really great teachers. Uh, parents cannot build community health centers or children's health programs by themselves. So really, what this boils down to in practical terms is this is a raising children successfully requires a very active partnership between parents and government. One of the great things about, or the potentially great things about living in America is that we're a country of great wealth and a country of strong values. So somehow we should be putting those two elements together and creating uh, priorities that will help children become the success stories that we, we've talked about. It's not like we're a struggling uh, country, a third-world country, with very serious economic problems, or we don't have the money to invest properly in children, or we don't have uh, the uh, parents' ability to, to be parents because they're struggling so much. We have the capacity here to do the right thing and make sure our children grow up healthfully. And by the way, we don't know whether we're raising republican or democratic children we know we're raising children and um i think we should try as so to answer your question what could people do number one is we should try to make sure we understand what's available in our communities to help us with our children number two and i i don't know whether i'm supposed to say this or not but i think asking politicians as a literally a litmus test, are you going to support these specific programs to care for children or or not um, and I think we should hold their feet to the fire I know there's so many other issues that people are concerned about but from my point of view uh, nothing's more important than what how politicians prioritize uh, programs and support of children and children's families. And I think we have to be on guard that we're not just getting lip service back. You know, the old slogan, children are our future, that's true. But you need to be able to be doing, if you're an elected official, with the ability to vote on budgets and to set priorities, what are you specifically going to do? What is your track record? And I think that should, uh, certainly does with me, but I think it should influence people's voting but but parents in terms of if the goal is success of children be active in your schools be on the PTA uh, find out what uh, you know make sure you stay involved Um, make sure your local officials hear from you in terms of what's going on with your child's education be in the ballot box be in the voting booth when the the time comes and vote for those candidates that you think are going to be uh, more likely to support programs for children Um, you can write letters to uh, your representatives about your views on children. You can write uh, letters to the editor. You can be, I guess what I'm saying is to be expressive about your support of children and how important it is to you as a parent and member of the community that you're doing what uh, you're supporting what needs to get done.
1: And actually be active as well, not just say, oh yeah, we got to help our kids. Exactly. But actually do something. Take a step, put that right foot up, and do something that you haven't done before that helps build a better future. If everyone in this country did one step, one task to move forward to this goal, we would have a better future because our children are our future. That's, that's our Aren't, legacy here.
2: They are. They totally are. Um, but we need to get beyond, as you point out, Tony, just saying that and actually doing things of the types of things I was talking about to, to move this agenda forward.
1: Very good. This is the Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Just ahead, Erwin shares more insights and his contact info. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment.
3: This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired.
1: Check out my other great interviews at TonyDurso.com slash radio or using your Android or iPhone. Get the app at TonyDurso.com slash mobile. That's TonyDurso.com slash radio or slash mobile.
3: channel
4: do you believe that being fit is difficult do you think it requires turning in your favorite comfort foods for boring chicken and broccoli and spending hours in a gym it doesn't tune into have it all with devin alexander devin and her guest experts will show you how you can have it all at any age from relationships to money to thinking bigger than you've ever imagined devin will fast track your goals to yummy reality tune in every wednesday at 9 a.m pacific time and 12 noon eastern time
0: We don't follow,
3: we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel.
0: You're listening to The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyDURSO.com. Now, back to The Spotlight.
1: All right, we're back with Tony Dierso on the Spotlight. Today's show is with Dr. Erwin Redlener talking about the future of us. In his role as pediatrician, child advocate, and president of Children's Health Fund, Erwin published, spoke, and testified extensively on the subjects of health care for medically underserved and indigent children and national health policy. He also speaks and writes about a broad range of issues, including national disaster preparedness policies, the special vulnerability of children, the threat of terrorism in the U.S., and the impact and consequences of major natural disasters. And now back to the chat. And as part of this, I know that at least in Miami, you started this campaign to, you were exposing child abuse, and I'd love to know more about that because I don't believe that the issue, how widespread it is, that, that topic of child abuse. And I think we need to raise our awareness on that as well.
2: Yeah, so um, I started, a, I think it was the first program in the South, uh, in the Southeast, uh, a child abuse and neglect awareness and intervention program. So we actually uh, were making doctors and parents and all that aware of what, uh, what we're dealing with. It was very, it's a massive problem in the United States. We developed a program that would actually uh, help the kids, but also help the parents learn how to manage their children without uh, abusing them. And I, you know, I think that's. And then I started another program like that at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx a few years ago. But yeah, so that's a really big problem, and I talk about that also in a couple of chapters in the book. But yes, that's a big problem, and I think you know, just to fast forward to write this very second, you know, I've been uh, very actively writing about and speaking out about uh, children who have been separated from their parents at the border, which uh, I've called uh, child abuse by government. This is something that, among all the things I've seen and done in my uh, career, I, I think this counts among the most heartbreaking and infuriating situations where we're taking, separating children from their parents at the border, and then many of these children are have been separated for a long time have been highly traumatized and as have their parents, by the way, but hundreds of them still not returned and some of them may never be returned because we lost track of, you know, who the parents were, where they were. And and we basically created uh, hundreds of orphans uh, in addition to the traumatized children just being separated for so long, this terrible situation, but uh, hopefully we'll, uh, Uh, we'll uh, get this resolved soon. But so lots of children uh, experiencing adversities, which they should not be at all, but are, unfortunately.
1: And that's such an easy thing. If you want to look at it easy, it's not that difficult to put the families together. It really isn't. It just takes a little bit of effort. Yeah, there's red tape. Yeah, there's this and that. But when you come down to it, if both sides really want to help on that, they can find a way to deal with it. It's, just, degree, it's Tony. just beyond crazy. I, there's just not enough words for this. No, it's just it's, it's just not. preposterous to the nth degree here.
2: Yes, yes.
1: So we definitely have to. Everyone take two steps forward, do two tasks to help make our future better, because that's what you're leaving it to these children and it the state of our future. While some people probably worry about the state today, you also have to take a little bit look at. How is this country going to be 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now? You have to have that. You live in it. This is, you've inherited what the past has given. You may or may not like it. So you have to take your responsibility and do a little bit something so that your children, your progeny, and so forth, they inherit something better. You have to. You really owe it to society, everyone. So I say take two steps forward (laughs) on this. And now... I did want to ask something on this book i 'm glancing through some you talk about and I thought this was really fascinating. You led a team that determined how to allocate funds raised for Africa, and that organization helped alleviate famine that actually killed like a million people
2: yeah, yeah, so the organization was and people of a certain age will remember this it was called uh, it was we are the world but Uh, they produced a song called, well, the song was We Are the World. The organization was USA for Africa. We Are the World that uh, was written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. I
1: remember that
2: well. Right. So they brought together all the seriously A-list superstars of the time, from Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen and Paul Simon, Dionne Warwick. uh, I mean, uh, everybody think, could think of
1: i think bob and, hope was at one of those as well i seem to I think back that, that one.
2: one no i don't think not this oh, it was one, a but, different one okay yeah but uh for this one was like literally all the a-list uh, american singers were at this recording and that's that record back in 1985 raised six sixty million dollars which a lot of money then and uh, even now it's a lot of money and um So I was on the board of directors of USA for Africa, and I was their medical expert, and we visited Ethiopia and Sudan and a couple other countries in in sub-Saharan Africa. But yeah, so those were some incredible visits to see people, uh, unfortunately, who needed a lot of help, who were starving, and uh, were able to provide quite a lot of support to those families. But yeah, and we worked in conjunction with the United Nations, and other uh, other organizations. And uh, yeah, so uh, that was a really extraordinary experience for me too.
1: Very good. Hats off. You've done so much. You've accomplished so much. It is such an honor to interview you and chat with you on this. And I just have to say, I really appreciate you taking the time with us. There's so sure. much we've learned. I have a few more questions, but I just wanted to thank you again, because this is such a great, great's not the word, just such a very dire topic. That has to be up at the forefront of our minds. And I just love that we're actually doing this and chatting about this and raising awareness. This is great. There's another facet to this. You are a co-founder with the Children's Health Fund. And I believe Paul Simon, singer, songwriter, works with you. You work with him. He's also a co-founder. And you help the disadvantaged children. And I think, is that the program where you where you drive around in your big blue buses?
2: Yes, it is. And um, so and actually, I met Paul Simon because he was one of the singers on We Are the World. He was living in New York City, and he wanted to know if he could get some of that $60 million to, to do some programs for homeless or hungry kids in the United States. And the USA for Africa organization said not really because we promised the donors the people that bought the record that, uh, the money would all be used in sub-Saharan Africa, but they recommend that he, that he meet me. And I met with him and I, we went on a tour. I call it the tour from hell of these, uh, uh, welfare hotels and shelters where these children were being warehoused by the thousands, uh, these homeless kids with their families. And, um, very, very moving, and he said to me, "What can we do about this?" And I said, "Well, these kids aren't really getting health care. Let's do kind of a fancy house call, and instead of just a doctor with a doctor's bag going to visit these families, we'll, we'll provide a mobile child health clinic so they could bring the entire clinic with them." Then was me at the time, because I was the only pediatrician in the beginning seeing these children, but that's how I met Paul. And we ended up co-founding Children's Health Fund, and actually people, I'm going to look at the website, childrenshealthfund.org, and it's really, it's now been 31 years since we've been out there. We've seen about almost four and a half million encounters, visits with children. We have... uh, 53 mobile children's health clinics scattered in 16 or 17 states, and uh, about 23 different programs, where we're seeing almost 300,000 healthcare encounters every year. But it's a very big program that has remained very, very true to itself uh, on the ground, where we have wonderful doctors and nurses and other support staff who help us make sure that we that we're providing services to as many children as we possibly can
1: very impressive that is just great and i hope that everyone checks that out and contributes and helps with that very worthy causes it's our future and not just in the us but you also are abroad you mentioned earlier puerto rico and i think one of the one of the central american countries what do you do outside of the us
2: yeah so right now we're mostly focused on the us and by the way i should also say that the the proceeds from the book, The Future of Us, 100%, after the, whatever the expenses are, go to um, Children's Health Fund. So it's a charity, it's a non for profit tax-deductible organization. So if you people buy the book, that's where the proceeds go. So internationally, we don't really, Children's Health Fund has been itself really quite focused on programs in the U.S. We've, we're doing work in Puerto Rico, which is the U.S. territory, of course, but um, we've not really taken that to uh, other countries so far.
1: Erwin, on the book, by the way, because the proceeds go to a nonprofit organization, and I'm not a, an accountant and I'm not trying to give tax advice, but is that something that people can, with the assistance of their accountant or CPA, turn into a charitable donation?
2: Yeah, sure. It is a, It is by definition because it's it's a type of uh, children's health fund is uh, what's called a 501c3 corporation, which means that it is, it is tax deductible and it is tax exempt. So children's health fund, like many, many other charities, doesn't pay taxes, but the donors, the contributors, get to make a tax deduction when they give to a 501c3 organization like children's health fund.
1: Well, there you go, everyone buy multiple copies buy a dozen yeah. buy a hundred pass Excellent. them out holiday t- gifts
2: right yeah,
1: yeah. holiday oh. gifts give them to your library take them to your school remember those two steps i asked you to do earlier one of those steps can be buy dozens of these books take them to school get them to the faculty spread the word so that we can make a better future if if you're extremely happy with what you have right now in this world that it's perfect then this may not apply to you. But if you think this world could have been better for you to live in, then take that because that's what we want in the future. We want something better. So that's one of your two steps.
2: Sounds good. That's Uh a great idea.
1: And one more question here I want to check because, you know, and I say this so many times when I talk to people, to get to the penthouse of the building, you got to go through the first floor, and then you got to go through the second floor. There's no magic bullet. There's no just jump up 100 stories you have to go step by step. And as in this issue, it just can seem so big. But if you take things step by step by step, as we've discussed, it can actually make a big change. And I think you talk perhaps a little bit different on this. You talk about the concept of moonshots and ways to change the system. I'd love to hear what you have to say about that.
2: Well, you know, there's many ways to change change things around you from the very small efforts to the much larger efforts. And I think, you know, for example, uh, you know, whatever whatever you're concerned about, let's say you're concerned about uh, climate change. Well, you could do things in your own way of life that reduces the use of fossil fuels, for example, or if you were very, very involved. You might work for an organization that's dealing with climate change and promoting, you know, new global policies. And for children, it's the same kind of thing. You might, you know, you, you might work one-on-one with uh, children who are in a uh, poor community and where kids... May grow, be growing up with families that have never, that no one has ever been to college, or no one's ever been to college, and you might help them and help them advance careers, like, uh, career wise, through the educational system, and end up being, possibly way more ready to kind of go to the next step academically and go on to a a good job in in whatever field you might be into. So you can work one-on-one as a mentor, or you can work working for an organization that deals with children and their needs, or you could be voting for candidates you think we're going to be supporting uh, advancements and more support for kids. So there's a whole range of things that you can do. I think the important thing, Tony, as you've said repeatedly is – You know, do something, put one foot in front of the other and engage in some way. And I think that would be a great thing.
1: Thank you so much on that, Erwin. And you know, we have such a great country. The U.S. is such an amazing country. For those that have traveled, you know what I say. There's nothing more to say. For those that haven't traveled, speak to someone that's traveled. The benefits, the lifestyle, what we have, it just, nothing beats it. It is amazing. And we've done that because of the power of a team. It wasn't just one person that created the United States of America. It was a lot of people doing a lot of great things. And regardless of whether or not you think it needs to be fixed, or you don't like it, or whatever, it was done with the team. And this, our future, is going to be done with the team. And I just can't say that enough. And I truly hope that you've been not just stimulated yourself, but that you go out and tell other people and pass the word, because that's how we're going to get it done. And before we go, Erwin, is there any contact information, by the way, of how our audience, if someone would like to get a hold of you, how can they reach you?
2: Well, um, you, there's a couple of different ways. and One way is uh, to, uh, you know, I'm on, I'm on Twitter periodically, and that would be a good way. And so it's ErwinRedLinerMD uh, is my Twitter handle. Uh, there might be, uh, we're going to be soon, soon having, uh, putting up our new, uh, website of them be my own personal way to be accessed. But, um, but for right now, Twitter might be the best way to reach out. And I think that would be great.
1: Well, that's good. I love Twitter and it's. And it's a great way to reach a lot of people and have conversations like this. So very good. Thank you. Such an amazing interview with Doctor Irwin Redlener discussing the future of us with his great book. You guys can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Get check it out. And if I'm not mistaken, let me just see the website again. Is chfund.org. Yeah, Did I say that right?
2: If, yeah, for the Children's Health Fund. It's uh, Children's Health Fund. Children's so no apostrophe, no spaces. So children's healthfund.org.
1: Okay, great. And everyone, I'm gonna hold you to it. Buy dozens of books, go take them to your schools. And if you don't have children, take them to your library. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us, Erwin. I love it. And I really hope that we've created more awareness and got more action done because That's what it's all about. So I just want to thank you so much.
2: This was a great conversation, Tony. I really appreciate being on your show and uh, and, uh, best to you and all your listeners. And hopefully we'll all be together making the world a whole lot better than it currently is. So thank you.
1: Thank you again. The honor is ours. And to our Spotlight audience, thanks again. It's our honor to have you listen. All right. Keep your focus on success and we'll see you next on the Spotlight.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Now, enjoy the weekend.